2: Welcome to New Books and Mathematics, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Corey Brunson, a host of the channel, and I'm talking today with James Wynn and G. Mitchell Reyes, editors of Arguing with Numbers, the Interactions, I'm sorry, the Intersections of Rhetoric and Mathematics, published in 2021 by the Pennsylvania State University Press. My awareness of the interplay between mathematics and rhetoric is spotty at best. I'm aware of his, the historical vignette of Lincoln, for example, carrying around a copy of Euclid uh, and other such stories of orders in Greek mathematics. And of course, I'm aware of the rapid fire use of numbers for good or for ill in public discourse by advertisers and polemicists. But I knew of no cohesive research agenda. And it turns out that's not just me. This edited volume is in part an effort to shape such an agenda from a large but scattered body of work. But for many readers, certainly myself, uh, but possibly for those working in this area, it may also demonstrate the breadth of the topic and the fascinating themes that arise from its case studies, which I'm joined by the editors to discuss. Mitch and James, welcome to the podcast. Thank Thank you. you. Thanks for having us. So to begin, I'd like you both to introduce yourselves, uh, your research backgrounds, both uh, in mathematics and in rhetoric. And maybe we'll start with James.
1: So um, my background is more on the rhetoric side and less on the mathematics side. Um, my dissertation was on um, the role of mathematics and arguing mathematics into science, particularly um, during the late 19th and early 20th century in the, in the study of evolution and variation and heredity. So um, in some ways I really have come to mathematics from a humanities perspective, um, but I've always found mathematics um, interesting, although a little bit terrifying for me uh, because I am more of a humanities person. Um, I think Mitch can talk a little bit about his expertise in mathematics. Mine is mostly sort of autodidactic. Um, In order to write my dissertation, for example, I had to teach myself a lot about um, the history and, and mathematics of probability. Um, so that's kind of my my entryway into getting involved in this particular area. Um, so I'm not a mathematician, um, but I am extremely interested in mathematics and the kind of rhetorical work that it does. Um, and the t- and the kind of rhetorical work that needs done um, to get mathematics sort of into the into the public um, and and involve it in public arguments.
0: And um, my background is in mathematics to some extent, though I wouldn't necessarily call myself a mathematician. I do have a degree uh, through to a BS in mathematics in college. When I was in college, um, I was doing my mathematics coursework, um, taking my senior seminar on the history of the calculus and doing work in uh, senior sequence and probability and statistics. Um, And I was taking also simultaneously courses in rhetoric because I I originally wanted to be a mathematics teacher or professor, um, and I wanted to be good at communicating abstract ideas to students. And so I started taking classes in this field of rhetorical studies to get better at that. Um, And it it certainly does that, rhetoric does teach one how to sort of speak clearly and well and communicate with others. But there's a deeper kind of theoretical basis to rhetoric in the thinking of how symbolic systems and languages sort of persuade us to see the world in particular ways. And I was really interested in thinking about mathematics from that perspective. Uh, It kind of dawned on me that when you do mathematics, you become something a little different than you were before you did mathematics. And that when you do mathematics, you're engaging with a kind of alternate agency that's that, you know, in, in a sense, we all know this when we do math, because you're not free to do anything you want when you do math, right? You can't just go around saying two plus two equals five, or that uh, triangle has 190 degrees or, you know, so, so that, that mathematical language is an interlocutor with you as you're thinking with and through math, and that really fascinated me. And I kind of began asking questions like, like, who am I when I do math? And, and what does does math kind of persuade us to see the world in particular ways? and If it does, does it, does it have the power to transform the world and not just represent it? So those are some of the questions that I kind of began, that began my path down this road towards thinking about the relationships between rhetoric and mathematics.
2: So you both seem to have come at this interface uh, from, uh, in part from your own initiative, not because you found this body of scholarship um, surrounding it. And I'm I'm guessing that because one of the earliest points you make is that that body of scholarship is not as cohesive as it might be. Um, and so as a preface to that, could you say how you specifically came to arrive at the project of of, of pulling together a group of collaborators, contributors uh, into this volume. So your motivations, you've spoken a bit too, but also what were their motivations? Where were they coming from? What areas of scholarship? And what did they mean to put, what did the group of you mean to put together?
1: So I guess I can start, Not I can talk a little bit about the origin story um, of this particular volume because um, it kind of started in uh, 2012 there was a um 20th anniversary of the Association of Rhetoric of Science and Technology. Um, and as part of this celebration, they were doing um YouTube videos of folks that had been in the field for a while. Um, and I was one of the person, the people that were that was videotaped. Um, and in the videotape, they sort of asked me about my interests, and I was talking about my work with uh mathematics and biology. Um, and then they were asking about maybe future projects. Um, and I, I, mentioned that, Hey, it would be really great to do, um, some kind of book or collection that had to do with mathematics. Um, and after that, I got an email from, um, one of the contributors, Edward Chiappa, um, who has a chapter in the volume. And he said to me, well, what, you know, what, when are you doing this and can I sign up for it? And his email kind of prompted me to say, well, wow, maybe I should do this. And maybe there are people interested in it. Um, so I knew Mitch and his work cause he does does work in rhetoric and mathematics and he had published in that. So I reached out to him and I reached out to uh, a number of other people. Um, and we decided that, you know, Hey, we can do this thing. And we all kind of got together. I think it was in like 2014 or so, um, to go to the, an argument conference that was in Utah, uh, to give papers on the chapters that we were sort of proposing to write. And I mean, after that, I guess you could say the rest is history. Um, I, I don't know about Mitch, if he wants to talk about uh, his involvement or how he got involved in it, but uh, I guess I can leave it there for the history.
0: Yeah, I mean, in the contemporary research, if we're imagining that to be like the 20th century forward, I would say the sort of groundbreaking essay that made an argument that we can think about rhetoric and mathematics together and that there's interesting questions to be had, emerges from uh, uh, Philip Davis and Ruben Hirsch's uh, essay in the 1980s, uh, basically making the argument that, uh, that mathematics and rhetoric have something to say to one another. And I know for, for me, that was an important essay. I, I wrote the original essay that I wrote about rhetoric of mathematics um, was in 2000. And there weren't a lot of people at that time that had published um, and made arguments for the intersections of rhetoric and math. And so I tried to sort of push that conversation forward by saying, we can not only think about the rhetoric of math, the way that mathematics gets mobilized in public culture for all sorts of reasons. Um, Some of them, you know, for good and some of them for ill, uh, but we can also think about the relationship between rhetoric and mathematics in the doing of mathematics. And so I kind of went back and was I was interested in studying the calculus and the invention of infinitesimals and how that challenged the, the um, sort of rules of thinking mathematically in the 16 and 1700s. Um, and, you know, I th- and then James, I think, was doing his work. Uh, kind of tracing the history of the transformation of biology by by virtue of mathematization in the 20th century. And so I think that 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 created the, I think the foundation for more and more people to ask interesting questions about the relationships between rhetoric and math. Um, And, you know, it was with this volume that we finally were able to create a critical mass of scholars that are interested in this and sort of bring together this transdisciplinary conversation and make it more coherent.
2: So that gives us a pretty good overview of the history of the book. And so diving into the first part, I wonder if you could provide an overview of the history of the interface itself. Um, The scholarship at the intersection of mathematics and rhetoric is not recent, but it's also not necessarily continuous. So what's the shape of this
1: history? Yeah, so it's, it's kind of a complicated history, of course. Um, one of the things we talk about in the book is sort of the history of rhetoricians, people studying rhetoric, um, and their thoughts about mathematics. And from very early on, you know, with Aristotle, there's a sense that, well, mathematics really involves demonstration. It doesn't really involve the kinds of argumentation that rhetoricians study. So therefore, it's kind of off the table as something being interested um, to them. But, you know, some of the later Roman rhetoricians um, like Quintilian, for example, and Cicero do make mention of mathematics and the kind of role that it plays in argumentation and its importance in argumentation. Um, But then for a long time, probably for, you know, for 400 years or so, um, the, the link between mathematics and rhetoric is really non-existent. People don't think about it in rhetorical theory. They don't imagine that there is any kind of pro- productive research or thinking that could be done by looking at the interfaces of those two fields. Um, for me, um, Mitch mentioned the paper by Hirsch and Davis, which is a really important paper, and that's in the 1980s. I would say maybe even slightly before that, you know, you have people like Charles Sanders Peirce. Um, and you also have Kenneth Burke, who is a literary slash rhetorical scholar who talk about symbolic systems, which include mathematics, um, and sort of trying to broaden our understanding of rhetoric to include larger symbolic systems rather than just natural language. Um, also, Perlman and Dieteka, who um, wrote a book called The New Rhetoric, which is a very important and influential book. That came out in like the late 1950s, and and was in English in the, I think the early 60s. They actually do have some segments in that book where they try to bring together mathematics and rhetoric. They talk about things like quasi logical reasoning and some other things that are associated with that. Um, so that's that's my under that's my sort of overview of the history. But I I would um, I would just turn it over to Mitch and see what his experience has been.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that the history of rhetoric in Western thought or North Atlantic thought, if you prefer, uh, begins with public speech and the idea that rhetoric is the study and production of public speech. Even Aristotle's classic on rhetoric is basically a text that's designed to teach young boys how to speak well in public and make arguments in public speech. Um, so in that sense, when you begin with that history, rhetoric defined as public speech wouldn't have a lot to say about mathematics and mathematical argumentation. And it's really not until the history that James just discussed, the, especially the work of Perlman-Ruweiss-Tayteka and the New Rhetoric that we kind of in the 20th century redefine rhetoric more expansively as the study of argumentation and quasi-logical argumentation specifically. At the same time, I think you have the work of people like Imri Lakatos, whose proofs and refutations really kind of shifts the focus on, in mathematics onto informal mathematics and the evolution and growth of mathematical knowledge. And I think that moment's really important as a foundation for the work of, um, of Philip and Hirsch um, and the eventual rise, I think, of, of construct- constructivism in sort of mathematical communities as a philosophy of thinking about how math works. And that's a really important moment too on, in, in the history of mathematics itself because the history of math- mathematics has been dominated by realism The idea that mathematical objects exist independent of the minds that think them or the languages we we use to represent them that the cosmos is is a a deeply ordered cosmos and that mathematicians essentially discover deeply hidden patterns and truths of that ordered cosmos that's classical mathematical realism it's still pretty dominant even in contemporary mathematical communities but there are emerging alternatives and I think that scholars like Lakatos and William Thurman, or Thurston, rather, um, are important figures within mathematics that have articulated or created space for the kind of work that we're trying to do.
2: You've brought us well into the 20th century, but I also want to prompt you briefly to go further into the 21st. One comment you make in this first chapter is that contemporary transdisciplinary research has been spurred by developments such as big data, uh, algorithmic culture and I wonder if you could comment on how these technological developments have contributed to the to the building up of more uh, scholarship of rhetoric and mathematics
1: I mean that's that's kind of a, a tricky question I mean um, certainly um, artificial intelligence has been a big, area where people are starting to pay attention. Um, So we think about things like, or questions like, are, you know, algorithms racist? Um, And thinking about the kinds of assumptions that are baked into mathematics that do things in the world, Um, like uh, scan people to see whether they are white or black, um, or whether we can match them in a police database. Um, So I think that, the, the more pervasive that algorithms in particular become, um, they watch what we buy, they watch what we do. Um, also Facebook, for example, this notion that these algorithms are creating the echo chambers that are um, beginning to divide the nation and to to create all kinds of in- interesting rhetorical issues and contexts, um, I think has become... Um, important, particularly social media, has become extremely important um, to rhetorical scholars.
0: Yeah, and I would say that, uh, you know, mathematics and rhetoric are being increasingly entangled in public culture, in part because mathematical discourse is becoming increasingly powerful. And by that, I mean, it's increasingly powerful in its capacity to sort of translate and transform our social material worlds. Um, it's not so much that I'm arguing that mathematics has always been rhetorical. Maybe at this, well, I might want to say that, but I also would want to say that mathematical discourse is opening up the world. It's opening up reality to rhetorical practice. And by that, I mean, it's opening up to the practices of writing and rewriting. Sort of think about how the mathematization of biology has given rise to dna as the code of life and think about how we're learning how to write and rewrite the code of life we're literally able to write new or organic beings into existence already and that's only going to increase and so you know at one point in history we would have said no, that's impossible. Life, nature is part of reality. It's something that we discover, but it's not something that we invent. But now we're in the position where we can actually invent new life forms and sort of transform and translate our ecologies in radical ways. Um, and that's that's opened nature. That's opened reality to rhetorical practice in, in fascinating ways that, that are going to r- raise Terribly difficult, complicated, and exciting questions for future research.
2: I should mention these kinds. Some of these kinds of questions have come up in my um, previous discussions, and I'm I'm I've I very much recognize that they are proliferating alongside the, uh, the, the the tools that make them possible. Um. So jumping to chapter two, as as you mentioned earlier, Edward Shappa's chapter provides us with this. Three pronged approach to understand uh, what exists or what um, forms the interface between rhetoric and mathematics can take. So, could you just provide uh, a summary of these three types that we can then refer back to if necessary as we discuss later chapters?
1: Uh, sure. I guess I could I could take the lead on that. So. Um... The way that Edward Chiappa divides mathematics is, is into three parts, like rhetoric of mathematics, rhetoric in mathematics, and mathic- mathematical language as rhetorical. The notion of rhetoric of mathematics is really this notion that whenever we use mathematics in argumentation, um, it lends to that argumentation a sense of objectivity. Um, it lends to that argumentation a sense of rigor. Um, and not always and and so it, it is perceived as rigorous it's perceived as objective but that doesn't mean that necessarily it is um so this notion that that mathematics itself carries a weight in argumentation just for existing just for being part of the argument itself now rhetoric in mathematics is more focused on exactly how um different kinds of rhetorical dimensions exist within mathematics itself Um, so, you know, thinking about, um, arguing, uh, over a particular theorem or over a particular proof and how proofs are made, um, and, and what are the criteria for proofs and how do mathematical values about things like, like the aesthetics of simplicity, um, how do they contribute to the way that mathematicians think about argument, think about argumentation and make arguments themselves? Um, also, the, the final section that he, he discusses this mathematical language as rhetorical. Um, this is really a, a, a way of thinking about well, mathematical language isn't static. Like well, the mathematics that we have now, um, one, is not the mathematics that we've always had. And in fact, mathematics has changed a lot over time um, from being, in fact, in like ancient Greek uh, mathematics completely written out with very few actual numbers, um, involved or, or any kinds of operational signs to now we have just complete, no natural language whatsoever, a lot of signs, a lot of numbers. Um, so really thinking about mathematics, the symbol system of mathematics, how it changes over time and also how it changes over culture. So this notion that mathematics is not the same in every culture. We have a tradition of Western mathematics, um, but it's not the same tradition that we find in in other, in other areas of the world. So um, Mitch, I don't know if you want to add anything about um, Ed's chapter.
0: No, I, th- I think that covers it really well, James. Um, I mean, you could add that that first sort of moment, each one of these three moments kind of traces, I think, the evolution of our thinking. Uh, about the relationship between rhetoric and math. So the, so, sort of the emergence of the idea of this relationship in uh, Philip Davis and Reuben Hirsch's essay is really it, connected to the rhetoric of mathematics. So how does mathematics get mobilized outside of the technical communities of mathematics? The rhetoric in mathematics is more about the doing of math, about rhetorical invention, Within mathematics, about uh, the way that sort of uh, ideas emerge, new ideas, and 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 the way um, how, what am I thinking? The the way that sort of um, mathematical signs or ideas emerge. So, I'm for example, the emergence of imaginary numbers, um, and how uh, Euler kind of. Really has a tr- tremendous influence on the spread and recognition and acceptance of imaginary numbers, and then the ripple effects of that across the history of mathematics. It's sort of hard to overstate that. Um, and the role that sort of analogy and argument play in mathematics, concept stretching, all those ideas that Lakatosh sort of maps and proofs and reputations, those are all different ways that sort of argument is productive, is kind of an engine for mathematical innovation. Um, And so that's the rhetoric in mathematics piece. And then the last piece, as James said, is thinking about mathematical language or mathematical discourse as a force, uh, both within the mathematics communities and outside of it. Um, So that brings us to thinking about mathematical discourse as a transitive force of culture. And looking ahead, I'm
2: seeing my notes on part two, and I'm noticing that these chapters touch upon each of these prongs or facets in interesting ways. So let me just go ahead and ask, part two is devoted to the power of mathematical rhetoric to shape institutions and culture, as you put it. So could you say what are the overriding themes um, in this chapter? And maybe if you want to shout out the contributors.
1: Uh, yeah. So maybe, Mitch, do you want to take this section? Because I think that yours, your piece is in this and, and also you were probably editor of at least one of these chapters.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I can talk probably most authoritatively about my own chapter, which is a chapter about the 2008 subprime mortgage meltdown and the collapse of the economy. And what I wanted to do was sort of challenge the broadly accepted narrative that the 2008 collapse happened because of greed and because uh, of sort of human judgment error and and those were the main reasons the reason i wanted to do that is because i think that mathematics has incredible agency and power beyond individual humans who even create that mathematics Um, And so I wanted to tell the story of a particular copula um, and its influence in allowing for subprime mortgages to spread throughout the structured financial systems across the globe. Um, And I wanted to tell that story in part to tell a story about how, how mathematical algorithms specifically can sort of marginalize human judgment and how we embrace that marginalization because we often don't want, we ourselves as individuals, but also major institutions, especially financial institutions, don't want to have to bear the responsibility of that judgment. So they seek out uh, algorithms and mathematical statements and copulas to, to sort of do the decision-making for them. And that can create a very uh, delicate system where, wherein if the sort of judgment parameters inside of those algorithms are wrong, it can create a cataclysmic collapse. It can create an economy that's actually much more delicate um, than the economy that's produced through old-fashioned practical human judgment. Um, so I wanted to tell that story of the, the, the agential force of algorithmic culture um, as a way of maybe cautioning <laughs> our unfettered embrace of it. So that was, that was the kind of impetus or the motivation behind my own chapter. And then I can, I can speak to uh, Shaput and Colabini's essay about sort of the mathematics behind Adam Smith's uh, metaphor of the invisible hand and that kind of uh, neoliberal conservative notion of, uh, of capitalism. And that, that there will be sort of a natural way in which capitalism will uh, balance itself uh, through a, a, an idea of um, how, the, the the idea of supply and demand, and that that will naturally and and so it's an argument that Smith makes uh, for allowing capitalism to operate on its own, unfettered by state or. Uh, Nation-state forces that regulate it. Um, so they tell this, the story, the history, uh, and, and the mathematics behind uh, Adam Smith's notion of the invisible hand.
2: Yeah, I I want to comment that your chapter on these uh, Gaussian cobwebs, which we don't get into here, but is its own fascinating story, does as you as you said, seem to bear upon broader aspects of what you're calling algorithmic culture. I these same questions or at least variants of them come up in the context of triage and other medical algorithms, in the context of rules of judgment for self-driving cars and other autonomous devices. So it's a wide ranging scope that there seems to be uh, ample room for further work on. Um, Yeah, job security. Very much. Um, and then this chapter on the invisible hand, I'll just mention, was especially fascinating to me because of the way a common metaphor was able to shift its role or that mathematization of the logic behind the arguments of John Maynard Keynes and later Milton Friedman um, put that same metaphor in a sort of at a different angle and made its rhetorical use quite different as a result. Um, do you want to make a small comment on Jones and Crick's chapter on Edgar Allan Poe's Dupin stories? This was, I haven't read these stories, but it was fascinating to learn how they actually did have some real world consequences.
1: Yeah, I can, I can say a few words about that. So um, Andrew Jones and uh, Nathan Crick, um, we're really interested in Poe and in particularly in Poe's detective stories. Um, Poe is one of the first detective writers um, to that, you know, comes out of the, the 19th century. Um, and what's really interesting about Poe is how he uses logic and he, he sort of feeds on this very sort of mathematical, logical systems um, to try to make deductions about human decision making and phenomenon, and in particular, in this case is crime, right? So what's really interesting about this particular chapter is that um, Jones and Crick kind of look at the way that logic kind of gets baked into Poe's stories and how he relies on it, um, you know, to uh, make make it mysterious, but at the same time, make the solution obvious to to readers. Um, of 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 his detective stories, in which Dupin is like the 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 detective, the French detective that um, solves the murder in the Rue Morgue. But what's really interesting then is that Poe, in real life, decided that he could use this same kind of logical scaffolding to actually solve real world cases, um, and so he made some predictions based on a real uh, world murder case in New York um, and was was terribly wrong about the outcome of it. And so what's really interesting is that, you know, um, the mathematics can work very nicely in narrative worlds um, where that can be controlled, but in the real world, things are always a little bit more complicated than the mathematics. And so you see sort of Poe's failure as a kind of commentary, I think, on that, his his inability to solve these New York murders using the same logic that he's applying in his stories. So part three gets into,
2: I like this word, the commingling of rhetoric and mathematics in the sciences, or I guess the natural philosophy, uh, as it would have been put at the time of these two case studies. Do you want to, Say what, the what sort of emerges from these investigations, or maybe just comment on them separately.
1: Um, it's probably a good idea to talk about them separately because they're a little bit, they're they have similarities, but there's there's also some significant differences. I think. Sure. Um, so the first piece um, writ- written by Joseph Little um, on on Ataro N- uh, Saturnian analogy. Um, is really interesting because what he does is he essentially talks about analogy and actually the power of analogy within mathematics itself and to 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 do mathematical argumentation. So essentially he argues in this particular chapter that um N- N- Naka- nakaoka is trying to figure out what are the forces that hold um uh atomic um uh, the different, the different pieces in the, in the atom together. And he decides that he was going to use Saturn and the mathematics that had been created around Saturn and how it sort of keeps all the, the dust and stuff in, in, in rings around it. Um, and so he said, well, we'll start with this. Let's say that the mathematics that keep these objects around Saturn are the same mathematics that keep, you know, electrons around uh, the, the center of an atom. Um, and what he does is he begins to like, in crafting this analogy, he's essentially using this the same mathematics. He's saying, okay, this mathematical formula here, um, we're gonna say through this analogy that it is also the same mathematical formula here. And by doing this, he actually does end up um, making some some quite astounding uh, discoveries about the atomic spectra. And so the idea is that it was actually this inventional process of using analogy, which is a rhetorical um, methodology for making argumentation, um, actually informs the way that the mathematics um, was made. So essentially, this mathematical argument, its very core, its very heart, is rhetorical in the sense that it's using analogy and invention. Um, to come up with these mathematical formulas and apply them to different sort of natural phenomena and if I could if I could ask Mitch what struck me as really unique
2: in this story is that rather than an analogy based on the form of the system the planet Saturn is very unlike a single atom the analogy is based on the mathematical abstraction
0: used to make predictions about that system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I would say sometimes that story works out well. In other words, sometimes the analogy ends up being robust. Um, But analogies are always thought experiments. And so, and mathematics is good at modeling those thought experiments. There's a similar analogical moment in the invention of David Lee's Gaussian Copula, where he makes an analogy between the death of, or the default of a mortgage loan and the death of a human. And that analogy sponsors the production of his copula, which then allows for the spread of subprime mortgages. And it turns out there are some pretty essential assumptions inside there that don't allow for that analogy to be robust, but we accepted it broadly. And it had terrible consequences. So, so I would say an, an analogy is an incredibly powerful resource for mathematical invention. Um, and sometimes that mathematics that emerges out of that sort of uh, that that synthesis is is incredibly powerful and revealing. And sometimes it can create whole systems that collapse in on themselves.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had not made that connection, Cavendish Tor. Okay, I'm sorry, go
0: ahead. I, I was done.
2: Oh, um, if you wanted to say a word about um
1: Fanstock's chapter. Yeah, I, I could say something about Jeannie Fanstock's uh, piece. So her piece is really interesting because it looks at how in a sense um geometry and geometrical forms found their way into um argument textbooks, in fact. Um, So she's looking at argument textbooks. I believe it's 15th century. Um, There's a a rhetorical argumentation theorist called Agricola, who's working at this period, and he's writing a dialectic, a textbook on dialectical argument. So dialectic is kind of like a twin but slightly different of rhetoric, um, according to traditional systems of argumentation. But in this book, they use a lot of these diagrams to sort of map out the different structures of arguments. Um, And what's interesting then is that some of these mappings that you see um, within the argumentative textbooks make their way into science. Um, And so you begin to have diagrams in science, for example, um, that are very that have, you know, the different points on them. So they're like A, B, C, D. Just like a like you would see a diagram in Euclid, right, with all the all the parts labeled mm-hmm. to it, like a triangle or something. Um, and so then, interestingly, you know, if you look back at at earlier um, work in biology and some of these other sciences, a lot of the visual representations look a lot more similar to like what you would see via your eye when you would look at like a plant or you would look at like some other phenomena, but. When these diagrammatic representations come along, the representations of nature themselves become disciplined by the almost geometrically so by 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 the importation of this particular um, set of conventions, these mathematical conventions for labeling and diagramming, and even the visuals themselves, like plants, become more sort of geometrically shaped in 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 a sort of perfectional way. Um, that you wouldn't find them in nature. So what's really fascinating about her chapter is we see how um, mathematics gets kind of pulled into argumentation. It then gets pulled into science in the arguments of science and in the visualization of science. So it, this chapter really talks about how mathematical visualization becomes a very powerful tool, both in talking about argument and in making arguments, particularly in science. Should I see this
2: as... Or should it, should, there, should we see a through line from this the development of these labeling conventions to the present day cartoon drawings of interaction networks or cellular processes that are very abstractly geometric and clearly labeled, or is there a different are there different uh, legacies of of this of this trend?
1: No, you know, I, that's a very interesting question. I mean, I don't know the history of, for example, diagramming um, uh, interactions between cells or diagramming like human interactions, uh, but I, I think it stands to reason that um, that the math, math, mathematization plays a role in perhaps how these things are, are, are looked at. I mean, you can obviously watch videos of certain kinds of cellular processes But if you want to put it in a textbook and you want to or you want to talk about it in a talk, typically, you know, you have some more schematic kind of diagrammatic representation of these things. And I think it's interesting because just as, you know, algorithms can import assumptions um, into thinking about uh, things, so can, you know, these visual representations sort of import particular kinds of relationships or structures Um, that perhaps we, that aren't there, um, or, you know, we're just sort of, we're just sort of pasting on top of, of nature. Um, and that probably has some consequences to it. So your last,
2: or the last part of this book may be of more direct or actionable interest to professional mathematicians, um, because it has very clear social implications, uh, I'm sorry, I don't mean diminish the the, the importance of, of culture and of practice, but the political valence is much stronger here. So this chapter focuses on the value to mathematical professionals of taking a rhetorical perspective. And James, you contribute the first chapter, and I wonder uh, if you could give an overview and what you take away from, your, from this story.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, one thing that we all always can remember is that mathematics doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? It happens in a society. It happens, it's created by people. It's applied to people. It's used by people. And so we really do need to think of the humanistic dimensions of mathematics, which is what what we're, we're trying to accomplish in this particular chapter. And I think mathematicians are very much aware of this. Um, and in fact, one of the things that I noticed in doing my research was that um, there is sort of a desire on the part of mathematicians to say, you know, we want people to understand mathematics. We want people to love mathematics. We want people to do mathematics. But how do we do that? Um, rhetoricians, of course, um, study persuasion um, and they study the available means of persuasion. So um, at least in my chapter, that's what I was very interested in is what are the available means of persuasion of attracting in particular women to mathematics? So, um, As you know, in in STEM, this has been a very big discussion ever since probably the 1980s is how do we get more women to be interested in science and engineering and mathematics? Um, Because there's certainly uh, a dearth. I mean, things, of course, have gotten better over the years, but I think still there's a there's much lagging behind. And so how do we get women um, into STEM? So one of the things I was interested in, in were accommodations, and accommodations are um, are efforts to get audiences who are are non-specialist, non-technical audiences to be interested in technical subject matter. And so what I did is I looked at Dana, Danica McKellar's um, series of books on math, which is is math doesn't suck. So you may know Danica McKellar or she, her name might be familiar to you because she's on the Wonder Years, the original Wonder Years series. Um, and she was Winnie Cooper. So she was the love interest of Fred Savage, who was the main character in that show. Um, but after she finished her her Hollywood career, um, she decided to go to UCLA and study mathematics and in fact was extremely good at it, um, published her own theorem um, or a theorem in, in conjunction with one of her professors. Um, and really decided that one of her, her, um, projects was to try to get women more interested in mathematics. And one of the things she realized is that the, the trouble happens a lot of times in middle school where, um, women, uh, young girls are going through sort of identity transformations. Um, and they begin to sort of drink in certain kinds of cultural roles, um, and some of these roles are actually inhibit them from being interested in mathematics. So what she did is she she put together this series of textbooks that not only explains mathematics very simply, but does it um, in particular for a female audience. So what I was interested in or what are her strategies, um, how effective were they given her audience? And uh, in fact, you know, what was some of the social cultural discussion that sort of developed around Um, this particular representation. So what I found is that, you know, she uses obviously a a number of different strategies. Um, The layout that she uses is very much like a teen magazine. So there's a sense of like uh, identification and interest in in creating these uh, and thinking about mathematics and engaging with it. There are a lot of story problems that are related to situations that young girls might be interested in or involved in. Um, She also has a lot of like female role models, like career role models, like this is what you can do with math, that, you know, you can have a great career, you can make money, it can be a fulfilling lifestyle for you. And one thing that's really important, too, is she deals with what's called the stereotype threat. So this stereotype threat, um, psychologists have talked about how um, a lot of times uh, women and young girls don't get involved with mathematics because they are um they're keenly aware of the stereotypes of women that that take on these particular professional and academic interests. And so that is not always positive. And so there's this notion of threat, like, I don't want to be seen like that. And so they stay away. So one of the things McKellar does is try to deal with those threats. Like, you know, you can be um, feminine and still do mathematics or you can like fashion and still do mathematics. So she talks a lot about um, this notion of stereotype threat. So, um, of course, this created a lot of it it had some success. It had great success. It was on the New York Times bestseller list. Um, If you look at the reviews, as I did, as I do in my chapter, um, lots of women are interested in this particular uh, young girls are interested in this particular math book. Um, But there's also a lot of. um, Public debate over whether or not McKellar is doing a favor for women or harm to women, This notion that, you know, well, maybe what she's doing is pandering to regressive stereotypes in her work. McKellar kind of pushes back against that and says, no, you know, I'm not pandering. I'm actually meeting women where they are. So there's there's sort of a lot of back and forth about um, how do we get women and what are the appropriate ways of doing that? How do we get them interested in mathematics? Um, So it's a very contentious issue. And I think in a lot of ways, the jury is kind of still out on this. so I just wanted to have a chance to talk about that in my chapter.
0: Yeah, and it, in contrast, it seems like Michael Dreer's project is a lot about bringing in questions of race and diversity into conversations about mathematics and math pedagogy. Um, he focuses specifically on the rise of the common core and the effort of the National Council of Teachers of Mathematics to try to implement and spread the principles to actions document to spread the common core um, and he, he draws our attention to the role that unconscious bias can play, the role that race can play and, and, and it, t- it calls us to think more carefully about how we can uh, you know, create rhetorics of invitation, invitation uh, to sort of people who have largely been marginalized from the mathematics community Historically, um, and that—that's, I think, also a really important contribution.
2: I especially appreciated in uh, Michael Jerr's chapter the detailed discussion of the role of a fairly powerful organization within mathematics and with effect with influence over mathematics policy, and the responsibility that they incur. So, um, I'm glad to have. I'm glad to have that chapter kind of wrap up the content of the book. And it leads me into the first question I wanted to ask as follow-up. What lessons do you feel or do you want mathematicians, mathematics professionals generally to take away from this
1: volume? Um, I mean, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Mitch.
0: All right. Yeah, I'll tackle first. Um, So for me... I want people to walk away from the book with uh, a few overarching takeaways, I guess. One is uh, that the the motivation is to understand how rhetoric, as the study of argument and symbolic action, is connected with mathematics and its evolution. Um, So that's the first thing I hope people walk away from the book with. The second is a better understanding of the role of mathematical discourse in the evolution of mathematics itself. Something that I think is often concealed from view uh, with realist approaches to mathematics. And the sort of final hope that I have is that we adequately demonstrate that rhetoric, especially rhetorical practices of invention and argumentation are not at odds with mathematics, but in fact are engines for the growth and evolution of mathematical knowledge. And likewise, that math is not merely a truth production machine, but instead a collection of some of the most powerful symbolic systems humans have so far created for translating and transforming the social material world. And that we have to sort of confront and understand those powers of translation.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would, of course, um, second everything that Mitch said. I would also add to that, though, that that really this notion that there are rhetorical dimensions in mathematics, that these dimensions are important and that they're they're worthy of attention, um, not only by rhetorical scholars, but also by mathematicians. And I think that what would be really fantastic um, is to have some more dialogue um, and to get mathematicians and rhetoricians in the same room so that we can talk about some of these issues and we can learn from mathem- mathematicians the places where they see um, rhetoric as either being um, significant to the practice of mathematics or where rhetoric can be valuable to the practice of mathematics in terms of you know how do we persuade uh, young people and women, um, people of color to get involved in mathematics? Um, what kind of systems are in place um, that keep them out Um, What systems could we put in place to invite them? What are the challenges of doing that? And um, I think also this notion of raising some awareness um, that mathematics um, isn't objective all the time and it interacts with the world and people in important ways. And just thinking about those interactions uh, and the impacts that they can have on people, I think, is is important.
2: So one of your wishes is definitely for further work, collaborative work between rhetoricians and mathematicians. And let me take that as a launch point to ask, where do you see the scholarship at this intersection going from
0: here? Well, I would just start by saying there have been for quite some time mathematicians who have been interested and have written some of the foundational work um, in this kind of subfield, uh, Reuben Hirsch and Philip Davis were both mathematicians. William Thurston's a mathematician. Brian Rotman, who's written several books um, about uh, semiotics and mathematics, was a trained mathematician and professor in Britain. Uh, so there's lots of mathematicians that have been interested in these questions um, So I think that the future is to simply allow for the development of this initiative to understand how mathematics is this incredibly powerful transitive force of culture and how it's only increasing. I think my guess is that that work will happen naturally because more and more people will feel the force in everyday life of the implementation of mathematical statements in sort of new and and novel scientific and mathematical research projects.
1: I I would add to that, though, that I was I think that, you know, we have to do some work on our end as well. Um, Rhetorical scholars uh, tend to be humanists for the most part. Um, And many of them uh, are in the humanities because maybe they weren't that interested or successful in mathematics or science. And getting them to the table, getting people interested. And I mean, I have to say that like, when I put the call out for this collection, um, the response wasn't overwhelming. I'm grateful to all the people that contributed, but I think we need to do a better job, even within our own field, of getting folks to be interested in mathematics so that we can have these conversations there, there, in fact, there may be more ma- mathematicians interested in this than there are rhetoricians at the moment. So I think, you know, spreading the gospel a little bit within our own ranks um, and also making some opportunities for mathematicians and rhetoricians to get together and have conversations about the kind of issues um, that are interesting to both of them. And I think that that would be really productive.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. And I, I think that that our field is coming around because it's becoming more and more difficult to give credible accounts of rhetorical culture without addressing the many technological agents that exist in 21st century contemporary culture. So there's all sorts of uh, research and, and scholarship going on around trying to figure out how we can account for things like algorithms, how can can we account for technologies, AI, uh, all of these sort of CRISPR, all of these new technological capacities that we have to transform both culture and ecology. Uh, I I see that happening not just in our field, but in lots of different fields. Um, And and to me, that's, that's exciting because it means we're responding to what I think is a relatively new rhetorical situation in sort of human evolution. And and that's the rise of the Anthropocene.
2: Oh, what a teaser to have to end on. Um, (laughs) But I do want to wrap this up. So you've mentioned a couple of works that you take inspiration from. So here's a question I like to ask, and it's, you can take it very open-endedly. What is another piece of scholarship or media that makes a good companion to yours?
0: For me, um, one of the books that's been really influential in my thinking of late is Karen Barad's Meeting the Universe Halfway. I think that's a really excellent book um, and brings together uh, kind of, I think, traditionally humanist ways of of thinking and analyzing with uh, her background in uh, physics. Um, so that book is is a really terrific book that
1: I would recommend. Uh, one of my favorite works and something that's been influential for me is uh, Theodore Porter, uh, who's a historian. He wrote a book called Trust in Numbers. And it's really about essentially how in policy and politics, um, numbers have ascended and sort of moved past the individual um, as sort of being this objective broker of of policy uh and and fact facticity about the world. So it's a very interesting book if you're especially if you're interested in public policy and politics and the sort of emergence of mathematics is a very powerful force in those different areas. And what what what's great about this book, I think, is it also shows from a sort of political dimension the way in which, you know, numbers and, and arguments involving mathematics really do have power in these systems and have in some cases become central places of wielding power in these systems. And I think it's a great book. And also I think gives provides some intellectual scaffolding for those who might be interested in, in rhetoric and, and the role of rhetoric in mathematics.
2: Thanks for the great suggestions. And so let me wind down with a traditional last question. What are you working on now? What projects are on your own horizons?
1: Um, So right now I'm actually working on a book about Mars colonization. So um, rhetoric of mathematics is sort of one thing that I do. The other thing I do is rhetoric of science. Um, So I'm really interested in colonization um, as a rhetorical construct, the way that colonizers... Um, what are the problems of colonizers? What kind of arguments develop around colonization? Um, and the reason I'm interested in this at this moment is that we are kind of on the verge of a new colonial moment thinking about Mars. So if we begin to colonize the solar system and Mars and other, other spaces, um, what is, what are the rhetorics moving forward? What are going to be the ways in which our colonial past is, um, influencing our colonial present and how our colonial present is maybe a little bit different than our colonial past um, if we're gonna have a new colonial moment instead of rushing into it or you know not thinking about what are the consequences of colonization it might be a good idea to kind of like look at the past and think about the way we're talking about the future um, and 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 really give a think about, Uh, is, is this what we want to do? Are we being ethical? Is this the way um, that colonization should or has to unfold? So that's what I'm sort of interested in right now.
0: Yeah, I've had a book that's going to come out next year um, on the kind of history of the relationship between rhetoric and mathematics. It's called Stranger Relations. Um, And in that book, I kind of tell the story of how mathematics and rhetoric initially are estranged and what i argue is a, a, a sort of platonic plan a platonic mythos of math and then i kind of jump into the 16th and 17th century and i trace mat- the evolution of mathematical discourse from the invention of the calculus through uh the creation of imaginary numbers all the way into the emergence of algorithmic culture. And I try to understand how that evolution has enabled mathematics as a discourse to become more and more powerful in reshaping the social material world. Um, And ultimately trying to understand math, uh, not as the only agent of the Anthropocene, but as one very important agent of the production of the Anthropocene.
2: In very different ways, those projects sound extremely interesting. So, in part for selfish reasons, I hope you consider uh, coming back to the New Books Network to discuss them once they are published.
1: I would be happy to. I'd love to. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Thanks very much. Uh, so, I've been talking with James Wynn and Mitch Reyes, editors of Arguing with Numbers from Penn State in 2021. Mitch,
1: James, thanks very much for joining me. Thanks so much for having us on. Yeah,
0: thanks. It's been great.